Hi everyone, this is Humanitarian Unwrapped. Today I have Russell with me, joining at, uh, online actually, not from Helsinki Studio, but I am in Helsinki Studio. It's sunny today in Helsinki, not rainy, so uh, very happy uh, to be here today. And um, uh, so I have Russell joining me online, and this is a special edition of our podcast. We call it Discord. We invite our fellow colleagues who just defended their doctoral dissertation to celebrate their achievements and also together reflect on their doctoral uh, research journey. Hi, Russell. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Anna. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm excited <laughs> to sit down and speak with you today. I'm also so excited. I think this special edition this word is so interesting for me personally because, uh, you know, I'm also uh, kind of at the end, at the very end of my journey, I'm preparing to submit my own thesis very soon. And uh, I really like these conversations with other uh, fellow students, uh, those who, especially those who just defended their thesis, to kind of reflect on the journey together, how you felt about your doctoral studies, uh, and uh, how now, after such a, like a, such a journey completed, how do you feel about it? So I hope our listeners also find it very interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite sure that many of them are at different stages of their PhD studies. So I hope this is uh, interesting, but also supportive for them. And uh, there's a point for senior academia members, because I don't think this is uh, what we're going to discuss here is only for those who are doing their uh, PhD journey or completing their doctoral dissertations. I think this is also for uh, senior members of the academic network. Uh, I really want with these conversations to give them a perspective on how how it feels to be the uh, PhD researcher right now uh, and uh, give them perspective on uh, recently graduated doctoral researchers uh, in this given moment. So Russell, you're the first one to join this conversation and uh, I think it would be nice if you just start with a little bit of introduction, talk a little bit about your topic so we know better who you are and uh, what was your thesis about. Of course. Um... So I studied, I just finished in supply mm -hmm. chain management and social responsibility. And my area of research was around cash and voucher assistance. Yeah. And um, essentially what that is in a nutshell is in humanitarian operations or development operations. It's the concept of giving cash or vouchers uh, to people that um, humanitarian organizations work with rather than goods in kind, such as um, rather than building out a shelter, you would give um, people in need the money to build the shelter themselves, of course, with guidance. And this can be replicated across different goods and services. So that's already been studied in humanitarian development work. However, what I was looking at was how this affected supply chains and what it meant um, for the procurement process, what it meant for the logistics, and delved into that in a nutshell. Of course, 400 pages later, you can have some nuances <laughs> there. Of course, of course. Oh my God, it's a fantastic topic. I did uh, get myself familiar with these conversations, for example, in-kind versus uh, uh, the uh, monetary support. So I absolutely like 
I'm absolutely interested in your topic and uh, I hope we can also uh, someday later record an episode just uh, solely focusing on this particular topic. But today we are here to reflect on the PhD journey, so I'm going to drag the conversation towards that side. Uh, I was thinking uh, to start with something like very, very uh, maybe maybe even personal or like feelings and uh, this kind of uh, more qualitative <laughs> things rather uh, uh, rather than that. So cast your mind back when you arrived at Hamke. How did you feel about starting your PhD? I can remember the very first day that I arrived at Hamke and I started in January rather than the, the fall track. Mm -hmm. So I, um, I can remember arriving a week. I woke up, um, I was staying at an Airbnb temporarily mm -hmm. until I figured out a longer term solution. And um, I woke up and it was a very snowy morning and the snow was coming down so hard. I didn't have um, internet on my phone at that time. So I had to download a, a Google map and then I was trying to walk, um, you know, essentially just 10 minutes to the campus downtown Helsinki. And because it was snowing so hard, I walked straight past um Hunkin because it was um it's a rather small building I wasn't I didn't know what to expect and yeah. I walked into Alto which used to be right next door to to Hunkin <laughs> and um they kindly pointed me in the direction of where I should go and then I arrived and um then we started the orientation and at that point I realized that okay this is it you know this is the start and I remember sitting there you know with other classmates of mine who would go with me through the journey that this is how it's going to start. And I thought at that time that four years is going to be a long time. But then reflecting mm -hmm. back, four years goes by in a blink and it feels like you can you know, hardly cram everything into those four years. Um, so I just remember that it felt like it was going to be such a long time. And then yeah. after settling in for two weeks, there's kind of another funny thought. There, for the first two weeks, you're you're busy enough with signing forms and getting everything ready for the process. But then I remember having a thought like, how do I actually start the research? How do I, you know, where, where's my starting point that I can actually jump into this? Um, so th there's a lot of going on up front. Exactly, exactly. I can sort of relate to that. But I was uh, when you were telling about the snow and uh, how you were walking to the building, I kind of thought that that's a, such an interesting metaphor for the PhD journey itself, <laughs> because uh, we do get like those uh, heavy snowfalls and uh, we do need to find our own path, uh, but also kind of this uh, orientation and finding the campus I felt like also there's uh, support and there you find people who uh, kind of help you to stay motivated and uh, to find right angles to your research so I would even take this <laughs> your uh, little story about first day as a metaphor to the whole PhD journey so that was great yeah and um well, you already told about the weather, so I thought that probably that was not the reason why you picked Finland, right, in the first place. So uh, do you remember why you chose uh, humanitarian logistics and then why your kind of uh, choice fell on Finland and uh, the institute, the Humlock Institute? Okay. Yes, I do. And I guess I'll break that into two parts, maybe mm -hmm. even three parts. It's it's a it's been a, it was a rather long journey uh, to make it to Hunkin, and I think I have to go back to the first part of the of the question about the, the humanitarian aspect. Um, so my background is I have a master's in industrial engineering, and when I was going through school, I'm from I'm from the United States, from Kentucky, 
and I went to a local university, the University of Louisville, and they have an engineering school there. And I thought that that's what I wanted to be, was an industrial engineer. Um, I liked the work that we did. Um, I really focused on processes and simulations and systems. So that's what really um, interested me. However, when I was doing my master's thesis, it was with the public sector, um, especially with those who received um, welfare checks and benefits. So it was with um, the office for the state of Kentucky who distributed um, these welfare benefits. Essentially, they were um, overworked and they had furloughed days. So they were supposed to take six extra days off to reduce um, you know, the amount of pay going into the mm -hmm. office. So it's essentially, they said, can you do more with less? And um, that was essentially my thesis, can they do more with less? And it was about working with you know, the same amount of resources, resources stay the same. Can we improve the process? And we figured out that um, just by reworking the process and looking at things that haven't been looked at for 30 years, we can make small enough improvements so that nobody has to be let go. Nobody has to work overtime. We can, you know, work with the caseload at hand. Um, so that was it. That first got me thinking that, oh, that I can use these engineering concepts for other things outside of manufacturing or other um, explore other areas which I had previously not thought about. And especially with um, this social sector, this humanitarian sector. And that's what got me thinking. And so still in my master's year, we just I decided to see if there's interest from other students in restarting the Engineers Without Borders group on campus. And there was, there was a lot of interest. Um, it had kind of been a goal of mine throughout the whole process of um, getting my master's in engineering. And so I thought this is going to be my last shot to do it and restarted the program. And then we um, took one small trip to uh, Guatemala. We partnered with an agency um, and they needed help um, designing and building a water tank for a uh, nutrition clinic for children. And so for us, that was kind of easy work to, you know, just to make sure that architecturally it was stable, it could go up. Um, but then that was a sort of planted the seed in my brain, if you will, that um, again, affirming that these skills can be transferred outside of um, the typical engineering world. So that was the start of it. Um, and I had job offers immediately after finishing my master's, but I decided to turn those down and I spent a year volunteering um, in the Dominican Republic doing other sorts of projects like this, working in a small co-op bikery, um, working in the school. And I had just figured that was a time to, you know, further explore this. I felt, you know, kind of really um, more passionate about this than I had. And I didn't really know that I was setting down a path at that time in my life. Um, because after that, I ended up um, going and working with a nonprofit organization and then i had an opportunity to go to geneva and have experience with the un for three months and it led to another job in, in budapest with um unhcr um, doing supply chain management and i think that was my that was really a turning point that um, i could see this turning into a career rather than just sort of a, a hobby or exploring you know an alternative uh, path because up until that point I had always thought that I would turn back into manufacturing or, OK, now I'll get, you know, I'll settle in with um, a job that I studied for. Um, so it wasn't until that point when that I thought it would be possible. 
But at the same time, um, kind of reflecting back on the PhD, why didn't I stick in industry versus a PhD? Um, I think that doing the thesis, my I had an excellent thesis advisor for my master's program. And he always left that door open to say that um, you can, you're asking um, good questions and, um, you know, he really helped me to explore that path with doing research and with, you know, keeping me interested in the research. And I always liked the environment of academia and being allowed to sort of nerd out with, you know, whatever you're studying. And um, so uh, it was my master's thesis advisor who kind of opened that door to academia and left that door open and said that, you know, if you ever want to come back, you know, I think we can, you know, help you find something to research. So that that had always been in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. um, and it was after uh, about two years with UNHCR that I decided to keep exploring that option. And there were a few options on the table, Honken being one of them, but Honken was the wild card because at this point I had lived in Hungary for three years and um, I was from the US, so I was looking at primarily those two places to study for a PhD. And those were my primary candidates, but I had done my research and saw that um, Hunken, the Humog Institute, um, they were the, you know, the leading research center in humanitarian logistics. And um, by chance, I did see that they offered applications at that time, two times a year. So I thought as a wildcard, I'll throw in an application, but it's, um, I knew nothing about them. I knew nothing about Finland. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, surprisingly, I got called for an interview and had the interview. And then after the interview, I thought, no way this could happen. You know, I thought it was an awful interview. It was over Skype and, you know, just, um, I felt like I wasn't explaining myself clearly. And, and then about two weeks after the interview, then I got the offer and I thought, oh man, you know, now it's a real decision. You know, I know nothing about Helsinki, I know nothing about Finland. You know, how can I just uproot my family and, and go there? And um, by that point, actually, um, we had just had a, our first child was born and she was just two months old when we had to make the decision. So it was really, do we uproot? Do we go? And, um, you know, thankfully, my wife was on board with it, with the adventure and said, let's do it. And we ended up in Helsinki in Finland for this. So it, it was really about, um, at that point, Humo's reputation. And this would be the best you know, program to really dig into humanitarian logistics. The other institutes that I was looking at, the other schools, they either focus primarily on logistics or industrial engineering or supply chain management. And the professors I talked to, they weren't too familiar with the humanitarian concepts. They said, you could do it on your own if you want to. Um, we may not be able to advise as much. So really the opportunity to study at Humwag was it was there and it felt like that this is the right decision and um yeah kind of serendipitous in the end yeah yeah so it sort of was a very conscious choice for you right so you did your homework and investigated about the reputation about the uh focus areas uh, of uh, for example the Humlock institute of hanken but i still kind of like it how you call the wild card <laughs> 
Yeah, maybe this is how people end up in Finland, right? They just don't know anything about Helsinki and when they already here, they can't leave because it's actually very nice here, despite the weather conditions, of course. So, yeah, and it's uh, so cool that your family was on board. I know uh, some people do have to relocate quite a lot throughout their PhD journeys and they are scared that uh, how would I go for research visits? Like, would my family be on board? So it's, it's such a great thing to have uh, your family on board with you. So. That's really nice. And um, since the moment kind of you got that uh, seed planted in your head, do you feel like the motivation throughout the whole journey stayed the same? So were you able to carry the motivation uh, on doing your PhD uh, from that moment when you kind of decided that, yes, I'm doing it uh, to the very end? Or did you feel like some curves in your motivation? How did that feel like? There were definitely some curves along the way. and. Um, Let's see. So I first started looking. I can go back and look at my initial applications. I had first started uh, filling out applications in 2014. So to put that into perspective, I graduated um, from the University of Louisville in 2011. I started filling out applications three years later after um, being abroad for a bit and um, working with some of the nonprofits. But I wasn't accepted until 2019 mm -hmm. um, or I didn't, um, I guess. I guess it worked both ways that um, I had actually turned down two previous um, opportunities to study the PhD. And um, in retrospectively, I'm glad that I did. They didn't feel like the right fit at that time for the schools, um, either the location or the the topic, the proposed topic. One was um, I proposed to a school um, or just applied to a school and they proposed a topic to me based on funding. And they said, does this sound like a topic that you would be interested in? And partly it was, but I had also um, spoken with other professors and they said, you have to love your topic. You know, you have to be able to mm -hmm. um, really dig into your topic. And I said, well, this, I might be able to do that. I don't know if I'll be able to do that for sure. But um, in the end, I turned it down that it seemed like that I wasn't completely committed to it. It felt like that it would be a job for that. Um, so I turned on two previous opportunities and I thought that this is my third time. And as you know, filling out applications for PhD is time yes. intensive. You have to have a, you know, really well thought out proposal and you have to take time to fill out the forms. And I thought this is the last time I'm doing it. This is the third time. So it's either now or never. And um, so that's why I tried to, I guess, cast my net further and see, um, you know, who is um, taking applicants right now. And um, yeah, so Finland was definitely the wild card, but mm -hmm. I wanted to give it a shot and thought that if I didn't give it a shot, then then I would regret it for not having tried. Yeah, I can totally relate to something that you said about the topic. You've got to love your topic because uh, uh, I've seen like many people around who were sort of okay with their topic and uh, there were moments definitely moments in the phd journey when you felt okay <laughs> i'm really down with my motivations but that kind of uh, very good relationship with your topic like loving your topic they actually always uh, at least for me kept me up like i always felt like uh, i'm doing it not just for sake of phd but for because I actually very much interested in the topic. So I think that's like one of the insight that I will definitely take from this conversation that you've got to love your topic or you've got to find uh, specific angles of your topic that you would love and enjoy the most. So that's one of the, at least for me, throughout those past four years, it was uh, 
kind of the key to get up and start writing the articles, uh, go analyze the data, you know, those not the most uh, pretty aspects that uh, maybe some people do enjoy <laughs> analyzing data, but I find it really difficult. <laughs> so yeah, uh, this kind of uh, love and hate relationship, if you love your topic, then you're going to go through it. Yeah, but uh, actually I want to talk about not pretty things. You previously mentioned that uh, finding out uh, your uh, kind of narrow research idea, you had sort of experience from working with different organizations. So how was the process of finding the particular focus and scope of your thesis? Uh, I also heard discussions like, you know, overheard in the uh, researchers corridors that it's really difficult for many people. Like they know what their topic, they know what the area they like about, but kind of narrowing down to the research questions that you can answer that sounds very difficult and uh, maybe you figured out some tips and tricks that could help you throughout uh, this scoping journey does something come to your mind about it it was um, very difficult and i would um, echo those sentiments that you've heard yes. <laughs> through the corridor yes definitely and i knew what topic i wanted to research and that was cash and voucher assistance but i didn't know which angle to look at it and I have to admit here that I had a lot of help from both my degree supervisor and my thesis supervisor at the time. So Junji Kovac and Graham Heaslip, mm. they were, you know, huge at helping set the stage in the early uh, parts of this. Um, again, that I had had like an inkling in the beginning of some interesting concepts. You know, I, I knew that having seen the typical delivery of humanitarian assistance through in-kind and having done a lot of the procurement for that for two years in a position, I knew that just cash was different and it was going to change systems and it was going to change how we work with these systems. So I could feel that, but I couldn't exactly pinpoint you know, what it was at that time. And um, both my um, supervisors that I had mentioned, they had written a paper um, that I found extremely interesting and could somewhat articulate those um, thoughts that were in the back of my mind, but couldn't come to the front of my head. Um, so they had written those down. I thought, yes, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. I want to go deeper. I want to do a deep dive into this. So it was really reading their paper and getting to talk with them. And then when I had started, it was conversations where their senior researchers, they had done this they can help me extract the ideas that are you know kind of fermenting in my mind and guide me through the process um you know one thing that uh, graham my thesis supervisor said is he sat me down and said you have to know what the the literature already says and you know i thought that i knew what i wanted to research but you know at the same time i was like he's right you know how how do i know for sure what it is that i want to research if i don't know what's already out there and so that was um, what led me to do my my first paper as a systematic literature review was to really just um, explore all the other papers to the best extent that I could. What had been written and what are the um, kind of research gaps still available and how does my proposed topic still fit in you know, with what's already out there? Because if somebody's already written about it, if somebody's already studied it, then then what's the point? What's the value in that? So they were critical in, in, you know, really getting me off off the ground in the beginning. Mm. 
But that's a very thoughtful approach and uh, it actually makes you very well established in your field when you know the background and then you can build on top of that and also uh, you can locate your research in the right area. So I really uh, like the way you approach this uh, uh, from the very beginning. And you mentioned that your supervisors were helpful in this journey, like finding the scope and narrowing down the topic and also advising you on how to uh, get started with uh, uh, getting to know what's already uh, published in the in the uh, in this field, was there anyone particularly impactful or helpful throughout your PhD journey uh, as well? Like maybe someone else, some other people. It's not always our supervisors that uh, help us, but maybe some other uh, people. Definitely. So I have to give a shout out to Amin Magsudi, um, who was mm -hmm. my <laughs> co-author on many different papers and it was um very coincidental uh coincidental timing when he arrived at hunk and i had already been there for just a matter of months at that time and i had begun my systematic literature review i had my research questions i knew what i wanted to research and um my degree supervisor had introduced me or said you should go down and introduce yourself to to amin He's uh, studied cash before and, you know, he's had some similar ideas. So popped in his office and we started chatting and, um, you know, hit it off pretty quickly. Um, he's a very sociable guy. So um, welcomed me into his office. We had a coffee together and we started to talk about our different research projects together. And we were going through this this first idea. First, I found out that he's doing a, a literature review also on cash and voucher assistance. So I said, okay, you know, what what are your research questions? And we started going down them together and we had three out of four, almost the same research questions already pelted out. And I was like, okay, so should we, you know, we're working at the same institute, we're trying to achieve the same objective. I think we should, you know, partner together on this. And he was yeah. like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And um, so, you know, from, from that, moment we started to um, work together on this and he was um, you know very influential on me throughout this process and um, yeah we we had you know a lot of ideas together about research so it was really fun to work with I mean and hopefully we're going to continue that as we <laughs> go on in the future yeah, yeah great minds uh, think alike and uh, I was also thinking that I was told that PhD is such a lonely journey uh, so I, I think someone in the beginning of uh, my PhD, like it was some kind of orientation week or some presentation, they said that PhD is a very lonely journey. And uh, I think throughout my doctoral studies, I was questioning this uh, because I didn't feel that way. I always felt that if not my supervisor, they were my peer colleagues, uh, they were co-authors. Uh, or just uh, people I met at the conferences or doctoral courses, you know, we were able maybe not uh, to help me with um, getting through my PhD, like in terms of uh, getting credits for the courses and writing words for the paper, but uh, somehow on the other side, they were cheering for me or sharing their uh, feelings about their journey. So I didn't feel like that was a lonely journey at all. And uh, was it so because of Aming, your supervisor, was it so for you, right? <laughs> I would agree with you, Anna. I I did not feel it to be a lonely journey at all. I felt that there was um, 
plenty of support and also other mm -hmm. students to commiserate when when you did exactly. feel that things things were tough. So um, I understand the sentiment of it can be a lonely journey because at the end of the day, the work is on you. It's on you to finish yes. the, the process. I, I understand that. But I would agree with you that um, there's there's support when you need it. Um, and I can't say for every university, every program, but um, definitely um, with us in the Humog Institute, there was support. And I felt that if I had questions, I could reach out and I knew who to reach out to. Um, so, yeah, I did. I felt that rather than it being lonely, I made lots of deep connections and friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And since you had such a nice co-authoring experience with Amming, was there a particular like um, uh, reasons why you like co-authoring with him? Is there any like um, bullet points that we could highlight for our listeners saying that, OK, like this is our uh, good ways to like, collaborate or this is the keys to great uh, co-authoring process on the paper? Is there some kind of insight that we can think of based on your experience with co-authoring with your, your friend? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not an expert and I haven't written nearly as many papers as, you know, some of our other colleagues have. But just based on, you know, our experience together, it was really about um, openness up front about what we wanted to do with the paper, about getting our expectations on the table up front and also about workload. You know, we we had to be honest with each other about this is what is on my plate right now. This is about how much I can contribute, and these are the ways I can contribute. And I think that that um, doesn't leave the door open for false expectations later down the road when maybe you're close to a deadline and nobody's really sure who's going to um, finish up the paper. And also related to that, um, so for example, for that first paper, he took the initiative on that. Um, and then on the second paper, I took the initiative on that. So we, we always had a leader. We had a clear person pushing it down the road um, who would set up the meetings, organize the meetings and really do. Um, let's say like, um, yeah, push the ball forward one step at a time. Um, and I think that that helps um, not create tension between the different co-authors. Um, I'm not saying that you have to have a hierarchy. Of people but i think you should assign a leader a primary author up front so that that's clear and then delegate duties and tasks in, in my you know short experience that's what worked for us mm -hmm, mm -hmm. really good points i think uh uh like uh, at hanken i kind of have to give a credit uh, hanken environment for that that we kind of had very good work climate established and uh, I felt like with uh, many people I collaborated just throughout the courses they had very uh, really like a very polite and very committed and everything but we also shouldn't take this for given so everything that you just mentioned it's uh, also a great uh, reminder for anyone even though they are like in the same kind of environment as at Hankin where the work is done <laughs> people are taking initiative and uh, uh, setting uh, clear deadlines and guidelines for how you do your job and everything so uh, definitely a really good uh, piece of advice. Uh, I was thinking to touch upon funding applications. So I don't expect you to share much of personal details, but uh, I honestly remember I was a little bit stressed about funding because uh, I was funded for sure for two years uh, of my journey, but then for the rest, for the uh, remaining two years, I had to search funding on my own. And uh, first I was very stressed, like, is 
is someone ever going to fund my research? I had that kind of question, but then it turned out to be just fine. So I like if I would tell my myself in the past that Anna, please don't stress about funding. It's going to be all right. It's going to turn out just fine. How did you feel about the funding process? Was it difficult for you or you were feeling stressed or just all right, maybe? The funding process was stressful for me. Okay, and, thanks for saying yeah, that. So, so yeah, I definitely feel it, and I would be surprised if other students didn't feel the stress at one point or another. I know that we always heard stories at Honkin of those students who never had problems finding funding, but I know that um, probably the statistics for the the amount of applications I put in versus the the rate of return, maybe it's fifteen percent. And I don't know what the average would be, um, but I did try to fill out as many applications as possible. So um, I, I understand the need for it. And, you know, first time I was very thankful that we did have two years of, of funding. Um, I know many universities don't offer that, but it did help to relieve the burden um, for those two years that we did receive funding from the school. However, for the other two years, it was it was difficult. Um, Looking for funds is time consuming and it's mm -hmm. challenging and really you're you're pitted against other amazing researchers from researchers from good universities. Um, I always wondered, um, I felt that with my topic, a lot of the calls for applications, there was always a question in there about what is your research going to do for Finland or what is your research going to do yeah. for the, the local economy or, or something like this? And I, I really had to stretch for this since my whole topic was really about international relief work. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. So I kind of created this solution that said, well, and I gathered statistics from the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that this is how much Finland is spending, you know, either passing money to the United Nations or having their own programs abroad, you know, helping people who are displaced abroad. And then I also looked at this is how many asylum seekers come to Finland. But the root cause of these problems are these humanitarian um, disasters. And I said that Finland is going to spend money on them one way or another. However, if we can do this more efficiently, we can, you know, potentially re, um, either be more cost efficient with the money, be more effective with the programming, or um, you know somehow it's going to affect the taxpayers' dollars or how how the taxpayers' dollars are being spent. So I tried to create this kind of long loop argument about um, essentially it does affect everybody whether you want to see it or not because anybody who pays taxes their money is partly going to be um, going to these programs. So the least we can do is be effective with the money that's being spent. Um, so I don't know whether that <laughs> argument helped or not, um, but it was it was um, it was always challenging to, to work with these funding applications. But at the same time, I'm very grateful for some of the organizations and um, foundations that did fund my research. Uh, there was one in particular that had funded me from the start and funded me throughout the remaining two years. And you know that they, they had always written me actually kind of you know personalized emails so i felt that it wasn't just a large organization handing out money and i know that that's not how it is at the end because i know they have a board who does 
sift through probably thousands of applications to find the right ones they want to fund. So I can't imagine their job. I would be the most indecisive about, you know, finding the best PhDs to fund. So I don't envy them for their jobs, and I know that's not their primary job. So I'm sure it's um, difficult work, but I think the whole um, funding system, it's it's um, it's tricky and it's challenging, especially um, for those research, which might not be maybe in tune with some, I don't know, trendy topics, if you will, but um, I can imagine that there are some research that receives a lot more funding and some that are just as important but don't receive as much funding. But for me, I'm I'm thankful to have received the funding that I did. And then when you do receive it, it's usually for either six months or one year. So for that brief period, you don't have to worry about it. But then when it's up, it's up. Yeah, and that throughout that period, you anyway fill in some kind of funding application, right? <laughs> So you exactly. just got one funding and then you already need to fill another application to keep the <laughs> uh, funding periods going. Yeah. And uh, remember, we just discussed about this uh, persons that are particularly impactful in your PhD journey. I do. I kind of haven't thought about that before, but there is a person who is deciding on your uh, funding application. So <laughs> they're that person who is uh, really impactful on the way how your PhD journey will continue. Right. So this uh, funding applications, they can cause us a lot of stress, but also can uh, uh, make us feel very happy and uh, make us motivated to uh, continue with our research. And I think with the area of humanitarian supply chains and is the humanitarian sector in general, like we recently as a uh, society, we have seen a lot, right? We've been through the pandemic that touched everybody uh, on this globe. And uh, we also now experiencing the quite shaky geopolitical situation. So I kind of also think that the uh, general interest and a little bit more engaging engagement in the humanitarian sector has risen up. So I kind of hope that uh, there will be less and less questions saying that how this is going to benefit to a particular local community. No, no, we are all, I think, in the same boat, right? We are all uh, tightened up together. So uh, everything that we do uh, actually benefit uh, uh, every single person, right? Especially when we talk about the humanitarian supply chains. Um, I think uh, it's time to talk about the defense because uh, it, uh, it was just recently, I felt like it was not so a uh, long time ago I, because I attended your defense. Uh, it was great. I was great. I uh, enjoyed that. So you did a great job, but I was always wondering how did you mentally and emotionally prepare for your thesis defense? So uh, like behind that uh, person with a confidence presenting his topic. So what was going on on the <laughs> emotional side of things? If you would like to open up a little bit. It's it's a good question, and I'm not sure that I I, can, I really know how I prepared. Um, <laughs> I know my my kind of mental strategies. Mm -hmm. um, and one basic way that um, I like to run, I like to go for runs. And, you know, Helsinki is an excellent place to just to go out your door and you can find a forest in less than five minutes. And that was kind of one way of sifting through all my thoughts, my research thoughts, my thoughts on funding applications, as we talked about. And that's one way I used to prepare also for these. I would come up with these imaginary questions like, what could um, my opponent ask me about? And I would, you know, kind of rehearse these answers. Like this is maybe a point that I didn't explain very well. So I'd be running and kind of going through rehearsing these questions and answers, questions and answers. And actually, to be honest, none of the questions I came up with 
in my mind were actually asked during the defense. So, yes, so you were was your that a good strategy? Opponent, right? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah. Um, and that that was one way of doing it. And of course, then um, you know maybe the the more traditional approach. My my thesis supervisor he you know said that they'll probably ask about this. They'll probably ask about these. These are the standard sets. And he'd always say, "Don't worry, you'll be fine." Um, and <laughs> I said, you know, easy for you to say you've already done this. And, yes. <laughs> um, but he he always kind of gave me confidence. And, you know, believe it or not, those those um, little bits um, from him really did help. And even right before uh, right before the defense, it, the defense started at noon local time. Mm -hmm. And we had lunch around 11. And I can just remember sitting there with him, with Graham and trying to eat and i i've never had that problem where my stomach felt like a small you know tiny pit and i just was trying to eat you know some something basic from the cafeteria and i was like i can't even i can't even eat this right now you know and um but what he did was you know we just had a side conversation not about the thesis not about this we were just chatting and that kind of helped me to take my mind away from it for a minute and you know then he did say you've done all you need to do to prepare. And it's true. A lot, of, a lot of students don't realize that the preparation work starts the day that they start the research. And, you know, they know they've read countless hundreds of hours about their research. And if they can tap into that, that reserve in their mind, then they already have the information that they need. So I know that I was worried about being stumped on some, you know, question that I was preparing in my mind. But, you know, in reality, from my own experience, I had an excellent opponent and she we had more of a dialogue during the defense. And, you know, I really appreciate her for for setting that up because that's her to set the stage for that. And she really set up a dialogue that made um, that made it almost fun. I don't want to say fun, but it made it almost, um, you know, it, it turned into an interesting conversation between between her, who's an expert in the field and an expert in um, system dynamics. And I, I enjoyed answering the questions and the questions that she proposed because they made me think on the spot. I didn't feel like I was defending myself or defending a choice that I made. They rather stretched my mind and then I could answer them and say, oh, that's a that's a really good question. You know, let's, let's talk about that. And so um, actually the defense was much different than I thought it would be from mm -hmm. my own experience. Yeah, that's a really great experience because uh, I would, uh, I think I would even expect an opponent try to uh, kill me, try to knock me down <laughs> with questions, right? But uh, when you can sit down and uh, be also treated uh, like an expert, right? When you're defending your thesis, you are the expert in your uh, field. So sit down and have a conversation about uh, the topic that you brought for the uh, presentation. So that would be a great experience. I wish that would be the same for me, but let's see. <laughs> yes, but um, yeah, <laughs> something that you just said is like, okay, how can you talk like this? You already have done it. That's what I'm going to tell to you because you already have done it. <laughs> so how do you feel afterwards, like after kind of this uh, feeling of relief or uh, is it like a new door somewhere? Like, how do you feel afterwards and uh, what's next? Mm -hmm. Well, I can remember sitting down in the defense and I had just finished answering one question and um, I looked over at my opponent, um, 
Professor Maria Bessiu and she kind of gave this nod to to me and then to the Custos, who was my um, thesis advisor, that that's it. That was the end of the questions. And then you can just almost feel a sigh of relief inside you. This, <laughs> And then but, you know, you still have um, more thing, more things to do after that. But it felt like that was it. And then it felt like that wasn't so bad. You know, <laughs> these weeks of stressing, you know, for, for this, that, that you can do this. So, um, yes, there was a lot of mental and emotional preparation, but then there's this kind of grand, you know, release at the end. And then it was just kind of a, a celebration after this. Um, and you did realize that you can do it all along and that um, the people who were supporting you, you know, they're in the audience there, you know, hoping, wanting you to do your best, you know, wanting you to answer that question the best that you can. Nobody nobody wants to see you fail and nobody wants um you know to see a difficult defense. So mm -hmm. everybody there is, you know, standing by behind you, supporting you, pushing you forward. And then unfortunately it's probably not until the very last question is asked that you realize this and you can actually look out into the audience and see everybody that's there <laughs> and kind of recognize it for what it is, this um kind of communal effort to get you through the PhD. Uh, thank you very much for saying that, because uh, I think uh, now I will rethink the attitude towards my own defense that is upcoming, hopefully, <laughs> very soon, because uh, I'm not going to think of it as this uh, opponent. And hopefully people around me will also act like uh, they are here sort of to discuss and to even maybe celebrate this uh, knowledge on this topic. So that's how I would like to think of my defense and uh, maybe even come with this kind of um, vibe and this attitude like uh yeah <laughs> so uh, very interesting reflections and uh, yeah <laughs> so what's next so uh, are you staying in academia or would you like to continue some other your path somewhere other direction that's an excellent question and one that i'm grappling with at the moment right now so in mm. my last year of the phd um i began working with another humanitarian organization, CRS, and am essentially doing the work that I had been uh, researching for the past three years. So they were looking for um, somebody to fill in a supply chain cash and vouchers advisor. And it's been a great fit and I love working with the organization right now. So I'm happy where I am. However, I do miss um, many aspects of the academic world and would love to somehow be able to do both. Maybe mm. that's a little bit ambitious or um, greedy. I know that I can't do both full time at the same time, but I'm wondering how I can keep a foot in both doors and whether that means being a full time um, humanitarian supply chain advisor and teaching or researching on the side or being a consultant to a humanitarian organization while being a full-time professor. I'm not sure at the moment, but I would like to keep a foot in both doors because there is a feeling of working with an organization and being able to really put to practice what you're researching. There's an important aspect to that. And at the same time, what I love about academia is really being able to do the deep dive Sometimes um, with the hustle and bustle of our day-to-day -day work, we don't really get to do a deep dive. We just check off the next box and move on to the next, you know, item in our inbox. 
so with um, academia, you really have the chance to do the deep dive. So I don't know if there's a balance to be struck, but that's what I'm going to try to find. Yeah, yeah, I'm very sure that it's, it's, it's difficult because uh, we struggle to find that connection between practice and uh, research. It's not always there, but uh, kind of keeping foot in this is in both areas. It's uh, it might be very difficult, but I'm sure that you can find that balance. And uh, next time we invite you <laughs> for the podcast episode, you're going to tell us more how you do that. Um, we have one question that we try to ask uh, everybody who come um, to our podcast is uh, what would be your deployment essential? So if you would go to the field and you would be deployed to a humanitarian mission, so uh, what would be one thing that you would always take with you? I guess just speaking from experience, but I would take um, my backpack. And this sounds rather <laughs> odd, but I've had the same backpack for the past, I don't know, 15 years. And it's been with me on all the trips and everywhere that I've been. And it's kind of this like dependable uh, backpack that I have. And it's nothing special. It's not an amazing backpack, but it just kind of like grows on me that I know where everything is in the backpack. And, you know, I have kind of all the essentials. It's almost ready to go. And that's what I would always make sure that I had with me rather than anything, because I know where I could find it's it's equipped. So it's ready to go. And yeah, I would make sure I had that with me. So you would grab your loyal travel buddy with you. <laughs> Exactly, yes, it would come exactly. with me. Mm -hmm. That sounds so great. I like this idea. Okay, but uh, we are reaching now very end of our episode. So together with me was Russell online and uh, I'm here from Helsinki studio. And uh, this was special edition of our podcast. We call it this word because uh, we invite our fellow colleagues who just defended their doctoral dissertations and uh, we celebrate with them their journey and learn from uh, their reflections on the uh, path of a PhD uh, researcher. Thank you, Russell, for being here with me today. And uh, this was Humanitarian Unwrapped. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs>